Hello and welcome to another edition of the Copcast podcast. Uh, tonight we're going to take a look at some points of order from from the season. We're going to have a look at what went wrong and what we can do to avoid that moving into the 2021-2022 season. And uh, we will then look at what everybody likes to talk about at this time of the year. All of the players that we are going to sign or all of the players that we are not going to sign, depending on what side of the FSG fence you sit on. Um, so, to rattle through all of this and talk the usual level of horseshit, I have got Andy Bale in Liverpool. Andy, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Dave. Um, sun's out. I've, I've, funny enough, I actually I went up to Princess Park at the weekend. Jay and the, the local listeners will, will kind of know where it is. Uh, I put my head down at about 11 o'clock, didn't wake up to about 4 and I'm still completely red, so I'm glad, I'm glad the videos aren't on tonight. But yes, I'm good, and I'm, I'm looking forward to getting stuck into the season review. Oh dear, you're only a wee, you're only a wee fair skinned fella too, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. You're a proper, <laughs> you're a proper pasty Northern Irish boy. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's that, that, yeah, that can't be good. That can't be good. Um, okay, someone who's certainly not uh, as white as Andy. I've got Beryl Akis uh, with his lovely. Tanned complexion out in the Netherlands. How are you, Beryl? Uh, thank you. I'm, uh, you know, uh, for the compliments and <laughs> for the welcoming. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, n- n- uh, the the Dutch sun hasn't been treating us uh, very well for long stretches, but you know we've we've been seeing some sun. But uh, yeah, um, I, I'm I'm uh, you know uh, I, I haven't been on. for for a while, and uh, you know I I'd really like to talk about Liverpool again. So. Uh, very well, thank you. Yes, well, we'll get plenty of that here. And finally, I've got Jay Reid out in also Liverpool. Jay, how are you? I'm good, yeah, good. Um, enjoyed some time off work, a couple of camping trips away, numerous fires for you Northern Irish lads. Um, yeah, enjoying the weather. We're not quite, we're not quite there yet. Another <laughs> yeah. few weeks. It's nearly July. And Burrell, to be fair, you've you've mm. kind of lumped us all into that one. <laughs> it all originally came from his lot. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I'll take that. <laughs> yeah, but um, fortunately for me, I'm uh, I'm not the same colour as Andy because I'm a little bit more sensible and not falling asleep in parks in Liverpool, which some people might deem a bit dangerous. Yeah, no but... <laughs> I can totally understand that coming from Belfast. Um, yeah, don't fall, don't fall asleep in parks. I did hear a story last year where a, a fella fell asleep in um, a park in, in Belfast, and he woke up with a, let's say, a, a very uh, colloquial um, <laughs> emblem uh, <laughs> that was. That was painted on him with with suntan lotion, um, <laughs> which was then revealed. Uh, it was a bit like if anybody's ever seen that police academy where they kind of write dork on Captain Harris's chest as he's uh, falling asleep sunbathing, except uh, far more deeply offensive than that. <laughs> so yeah, nice, nice one, lads. I'll take that on board for next time. Yes, yeah, so I can I can understand the risks, but just be thankful you weren't in botanic, um, Andy. All right, so listen, let's get kicked off. Uh, let's just start um, just with something nice and easy and something nice and fun. Um, so, Jay, goal of the season. I know, obviously, um, Alison has been given goal of the season um, by the club. Um, 
but there's a few good goals scored, quite a few of them by Salah. Um, is there anything else that sticks out to you that you're just like, do you know what? I'm going to look at just the sheer quality of the effort, and that's mine. Um, I'm probably going to steal one of the other lads here because I've gone first, which is a bit of a blessing. Uh, but I'm going to go with Trent's goal against Villa um, for numerous reasons. One, it was a sublime goal to execute that sort of finish when you know when we see all the different camera angles of him, you technically couldn't really see anything other than that yard of space in the goal. Um, given the time of game, it was in just gone into the 90-odd minute. We needed to win to keep our season alive at that time. Um, probably ties in with moments of the season, arguably, for, for some. Um, but just the, the whole you know, meaning of the goal, it was Trent who scored at the local lad and all the stuff that was going on with him at the time with England, because it was around the time he'd been left out by the waistcoat wanker and he was just answering all the critics that was he the best right back in England or Europe or the world? Well, he's definitely in the top three in Europe and the world, whatever, but he's easily the best English right back and it's a shame he's not going to the Euros for for England, but as a Liverpool fan and as a local lad, I don't really care about England, so I think all reports seem to say that he's going to be back for pre-season. I know we've sort of got off topic there, but it's good for us. Um, but I think just at that time, given what the season's been, I think it might just be recency bias. But for me, that was probably the goal of the season for the whole context of what it meant. No, that's that. It's fair, you know that we we we'd already waded into must-win territory at that point. Um, and it was something early to kind of kick that run off, which which helped us over the line. Um, I think that might have been two or three games into that ten game unbeaten run. Yeah, maybe the second the game in. Yeah, um, I, th- I think that that was about the time when we were we were starting to do loads and loads of maths, um, and we were having all kinds of arguments over what number of points <laughs> would be required and where we where we could drop points and what games we must win. And yeah, it was one of those games. So. Again, it's 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 maybe one of those galvanizing moments that that went under the radar um, after uh, obviously the big goalkeeper ran up and made everybody forget about anything else that had happened in the entire <laughs> the entire campaign. Andy, what have you got for us there? Uh, so I'm going with Salah's second goal uh, away to West Ham uh, oh, in, in sure, around that was mine. February. Oh, was it? Sorry about that. I I, I thought everyone. I, I thought everyone would want Allison, so that's why I kind of went for for something a bit uh, different, alternative. Yeah, it's just it's just absolutely beautiful, isn't it? It's you know for people who can't amazing. remember, for people yeah for people like describe it dead quick. They have a corner. Uh, Robertson flicks it away. Um, Trent picks the ball up on around the corner of our own box, I think. Uh, first time plays it into their half to Shakiri. Um, Shakiri plays it first time left footed right into the path of Salah who takes the most beautiful first touch and uh, it's kind of like a flick dinked finish just everything about it is is pure artistry it's every pass is is perfectly um weighted it's perfectly um you know in front of them I always find that sometimes when I'm watching us like uh, sometimes a pass is just like a yard too far behind or a yard too far in front but everything was just perfect there and, and that was kind of part of the season where I th- it ended up being a false dawn. I can't remember if West Ham is after the the win at Spurs or if it's the one before. It's but I knew after they're... the win. It's, it's after the win at Spurs. Yeah, 
Yeah, because I, I think um, I think I remember just thinking we're back now, uh, and that turned out to be a bit of a false dawn because I I think we we drop a few more points after that before we go on the on the on the big unbeaten run. But yeah, it's just a it's just a truly a truly amazing goal. There's lots of little narratives in there. Like Jay's obviously talked about the the Trent and the England thing. You've got Shakiri who who Klopp, you know, we know was happy to sell last summer. Was probably happy to sell this summer, and um, playing his part as he did quite a lot, like in the in the first part of the season. Um, and then you've got Mo Salah who has just completely completely saved us again. Um, and it's just yeah, I could watch it over and over again. It's it's one of it's one of the most beautiful counter attacking goals. In fact, you know what? It's actually the best counter attacking goal I've ever seen. Yeah, and, and the finish as well. It's right foot, left foot, and it's one of those ones where you're already celebrating before the go- the ball has rolled over the line because it's just so subtle and delicate and everyone around's watching it and there's nothing anybody can do about it. Um, absolutely sublime. Beryl, have you an alternative contender? Uh, yeah, I, I was robbed of my own candidate, but, uh, um, you know, and I think it it, sh- it should be Mo Salah. Um, you know, um, if you if you're looking for the best goal, then uh, then you know it, it could be anyone, of course. And um, but there's there is narrative, and 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 some goals have more meaning than other ones. And 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 therefore, okay, it's it's totally fair to to say uh, Allison's goal is is the goal of the season. Um, because you know if he hadn't scored that, then we probably wouldn't have you know, um, been in third place or, or fourth place. Um, but Mo uh, was the only one who was consistent in his form from the, uh, in the front three. And I, I don't think we would have been anywhere near. And, and uh, you know, Alisson could have scored 10 headers and we still would have, wouldn't have been near uh, the, the, the the Champions League's, League spots. Um, and uh, I, I thought he was... Um, even you know we we got used to to him scoring lots of goals and scoring lots of really great goals and he he had a he had a spell in which he wasn't as lethal as he as he could be and um you know but uh, all over he he has been lethal and yeah uh, i think in, in the beginning of the season this was more apparent than than later on but he had this knack uh, this this new thing that he uh, sh- shoots really quickly when when uh, there is a rebound and there was you know we started off against Leeds if I'm uh, not mistaken and and he yeah. scored a goal like that against them he scored a goal like that against Aston Villa you know in the <laughs> one of the two that we scored in the seven two um, he scored like that against Everton um, all, all of these are contenders um, but if you look at narrative um, you know. Um, the seven nil against uh, against Crystal Palace is a beautiful goal, but you know uh, it doesn't really matter if you score the seven nil or uh, the six nil. Or you know the, the, we we won that game by that time, I, I think. So maybe it's it's the the four two against uh, against Man United um, because you know we were under a bit of pressure and we were playing with with uh, Reese Williams and Nat Phillips. Uh, in the back and 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 they had scored the three two and you know uh, there was a clearance off the line and and the four two you know sealed the deal so you know and 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 it wasn't as good a goal as as against West Ham and he's right that that was you know everything about that was 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 magnificent uh, but still you know um, uh, if you look purely on at narrative I think that could be a candidate as well. 
So yeah, I'm, I'm going with, with that one. Yeah, it's again, it's one of those ones. It's a quintessential Klopp goal. The press is there. We win the ball. Jones, Jones does this a lot where he's able to win the ball and play a first time pass, just set somebody free, and he does it again there. Um, and Sally gets onto it, and Henderson doesn't know what to do and ends up doing nothing. And the finish is relatively simple, but yeah, it's it's everything that everything. It's everything about that game that every Liverpool fan wanted to see. And the only thing missing from the performance was probably a Salah goal, and we got it in the end, which was great. So, decent shout. I think just a, a um, shout-out for me would maybe be Jota's hat-trick goal at Atalanta um, with Mane's pass, his left-footed pass, his through ball kind of bends around the full-back and the touch that Jota takes, in hindsight, is far more deliberate than I had initially thought, where he kind of bobbles it into the ground over the goalkeeper and past him, and then just slots it into the empty net with his left. And that's a really clever, intelligent, and um, improvised piece of skill there. Um, very unorthodox, just to beat the keeper. And that's a good shout. All three of his goals that night are actually amazing. Um, yeah. Especially, I think the second one's really good as well. Yeah. That, and that, that game kind of reminded me of like the, the kind of 17 18 gung ho Liverpool where, where teams actually came at us and we just picked them apart. So, yeah, I like that shout. Yeah. Um, just, probably for, just probably for that touch more than anything else. Um, but okay. So, listen, uh, listener, you can make your mind up. Um, but it's not Alison. Put so the poll on Twitter, Dave. Yep. We'll put a poll on Twitter. We'll see what you think, but it's not Alison. So just get over all, it. All replies to Dave Carr. All replies <laughs> to Dave Carr. Dave N R M. All right. So listen, Jay, let's get kicked off here. So listen, we, we're not going to go through the season. We know what happened. We, 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 talked, we talked the season the whole way through the season, particularly towards the end. We start well. We look great. Thiago comes in. Everton happens. We seem to cling on. Grind out results. Matup happens. We drop Fabinho back in and Henderson back in there. Then the injuries continue to stack up, compounded by Jota, who is the one person, along with Salah, who's really firing things for us, coming off the bench and getting winners and keeping us top by Christmas. And then he gets injured. And this is just how it continues to go. And then we have a really terrible home run, which is the worst in the history of football. And then we look like we're fucked. And then we go on a 10-game unbeaten run towards the end, and we get over the line and miraculously finish third. There's your season review, everybody. <laughs> You've heard it 100 million times. So what we're going to look at is kind of a bit of a recovery plan. What do we do? How do we avoid things going this way next season? And, I th- you know, people might just go, we'll buy more players. And because that's the answer to everything is buy more players and buy Mbappe and buy Sancho and buy whoever. But we know that's never going to be the case with FSG and rightly or wrongly. And you're going to have your own opinion on that. So there's a few issues we're going to talk through. I think the first thing, something off the pitch today I want to touch on. The Super League fallout. I just wonder, where are we with that? Is it something that, we're happy to brush under the carpet now. Has enough time passed for the dust to settle? There 
obviously the the sign off for the board um, to have fan representation on it has happened. That seems to be kind of a an olive branch, if you will, or something maybe to pacify us if you want to take the cynical viewpoint. And again, we've got news today of of the Anfield Road rebuild being being signed off to start this year and to be finished by 2023, taking 61,000 capacity. So, you know, are you happy that we're ready to go and just kind of leave that in the past? Or do you still think work needs to be done from the ownership to build bridges? Well, I'll start with, with the Super League pass. Um, it won't go away. I think all it's done for now is it's just shut a few people up um, but it'll never go away it's been on the back burner for years and years and we went over it at the time the stuff with like you know it's very much in parallel to when the Premier League come in in 1992 and it was the breakaway and how different the Premier League is from the Football League and so on and so forth um, but the likes of Real Madrid, Barca and Juventus are clinging to it purely probably for financial reasons because all have got big financial issues off the field um, but the whole rally behind you know the fan thing with Sky and BT and trying to hold them up as some sort of glorious saviors of the sport and that's a lot of crap um, and I think I remember saying on the pod at the time that we we need to restructure the whole football from top to bottom because the pyramid is just getting more and more thin at the top Um and at the bottom, it's it's struggling. The pyramid at the bottom is is fucked. You've seen clubs like Berry go out of business, uh, Bolton and Wigan. I mean, I'm going off local northwestern teams here because um, it's where I live, so it's more prominent in the news. These teams have, have struggled and financially have nearly gone under. Um, but the whole Super League thing won't won't disappear. It won't it won't go away for now. It's just been shut away for maybe two or three years until these clubs decide they want a bit more money. Maybe the next television deal comes up in 2024, I think, that they might decide, you know, we, we want to throw our toys out the pram and get more money again, um, which is probably what they'll do. But in terms of what FSG can do, I think they've always learned from mistakes. They, they, they've made mistakes in the past. You look at the things like the £77 tickets and they quickly backtracked on that. And the one thing you can say for them is if they do make a mistake, they do learn and try and eradicate any issues that they've they've made from it. Um, but this one did seem like a bridge too far for many fans. Those who were sort of defending them kind of just turned on them. Um, would money and fancy glamorous names buy them fans back? Probably would. Um but the thing that buys fans and supports is trophies. And I think we, however we do it, whether it's sell to buy, whether it's clever investment, whether it's buying these younger players that we turn into stars like we have done in the past, then there's many ways to do it. But I don't think they've been very vocal in the social media realm of talking about Liverpool um, since it's all happened. And I know the, the fan ownership... Uh, the, the fan contribution on the borders has been ratified and there's been a couple of meetings with the SOS and they've sort of 
got their opinion across and I think what come out from it was anything that's going to directly affect the fans or community has got to be sort of ran by them which is only good like if you look at things like the they were trying to uh, copyright the Liverpool name and taking away a lot of business from market traders and people who independently trade around the ground around the city and make the living off that then you know that 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 should never have happened and they rightly nicked that in the bud um so stuff like that yet yeah, you they are gonna have to run by the sos and maybe then that is the the little bit of an olive branch but at the end of the day the businessmen they're in it to make money and they've already made a hell of a lot of money if they were to sell us tomorrow they're going to make tenfold on what they or eightfold on whatever they paid for us whether it was 300 million whatever um but i think they'll probably avoid anfield i reckon until next calendar year i don't think you'll see them at anfield until 2022 where in normal times he would probably get over three or four times a year um so for that it might just be time as a healer and if people sort of don't see them tweeting about us, talking about us and we quietly go about our business in the transfer market which we'll get to when we make some shrewd signings and next season is a success and hopefully we're back on the, the trophy march again and you know things might be a bit more rosy in the garden all of a sudden it might just get forgotten about by quite a few people but it's something that won't go away the, the Super League will never go away and I think as soon as people accept that, the likes of Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher and Sky and BC going off on this tirade, then, you know, there's things that need to be done lower down the pyramid for me. But it won't go away. So we just need to learn to live with it. What they've got to do is they've got to try, sort the game out at their, at own, their own house and sort that money that goes down the pyramid and then it'll be slightly better. But I think as many will say, football was ruined in 1992 when the Premier League come in and created that divide and all it's done has got bigger and bigger over the years. And Yeah, I feel like I'm just going round in circles because it's one of those things that you just try to ignore because is there any point going over old ground? You just end up batting your head against the wall, which we've done many and many a time on this pod over this season, but I'm sure the other lads have got a bit more of a an input if they want to put it on the Super League. Yeah, so Andy, look, it's it's another mistake. And as Jay Wrightly says, when they do make these errors, and they have made them in the past on numerous occasions, they do tend to take a backward step, um, and they do tend to you know step away. But you know how many. I suppose how many more mistakes do you think FSG have in them before the faith is completely gone? Or do you think that there are enough shallow fans out there that the supporter base is broad enough across the globe now that that doesn't really factor into their thinking? Yeah, um, I think there's 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 a part of that. I think Jay summed it up uh, really well. There's there's only a few, a few more things I can add. I mean, FSG are chancers. Uh, they've been chancers since they came in. They've been chancing their arm to see how they can, you know, obviously 
you know, get a bit more money. Obviously, that's their that's their entire aim. No problem with that. But you know, they they have come in and they have tried to compromise the the values of the football club uh, and the values of the city. More importantly, and uh, I think that they're going to continue to do it. You know, I think at some point they're probably going to try and uh, rename Anfield uh, to get some sponsorship in for that. I wouldn't be surprised if that happens at some point. Um, and the question, kind of the the overall question on the owners is is whether you think that you know they're going to is there an owner out there? A lot of people have mentioned Leicester City's owners who seem to be fairly perfect, although I think they're the only club actually spending more than their turnover in the Premier League. So long term, we'll have to wait and see on that. But then, um, you know, you've got owners who I mean, you mentioned that they they have backtracked and they have quote-unquote listened I, I, I mean I don't know if they've listened really or I don't really like using the word mistake around the things they've made because I think it's a very kind of calculated um, decision to see what they can get away with and see what they can chance their arm with you know Jay mentions the the trademark of the city name uh, you've got the furlough of the staff you've got the 77 pound tickets uh, you've got countless things that 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 they've, they've tried to get away with and uh, and and they will keep trying to do that now you look at the likes of Man City's owners are the ones that everyone, everyone, everyone mentions. You've got, like, for example, Hull as well. Didn't their owner try to rename the club Hull City Tigers? Maybe even did successfully. Uh, you've got uh, Cardiff's owner, didn't he change their kit to red? Um, you, know, so you have yeah. these owners. You have, yeah, they're, they're just two off the top of my head, but you have these owners who. <laughs> they're um, madcap, but they are, they are really madcap, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Situations. But, there, but I guess my, my overarching point is there are owners who, you know, just won't give a toss about what the fans say and they're going to push through whatever they want to do uh, regardless. So, you know, it's it probably is just uh, in the end a case of the the devil, you know, FSG. Um, you know, they're, they have been good owners for us overall. They are venture capitalists. They don't align with the um, the values of the football club or the city or, or any of us on this call, really. But does anyone, does any owner, does any billionaire, the very kind of um, fact of being a billionaire, you have to be a bit of a dickhead, don't you? If we're, if we're all honest, I'm not, I haven't exactly deconstructed capitalism there, but that's that's my kind of view on it. You have to have a certain sort of mindset and you have to have a, a certain view of the world. So yeah, they're, they're the devil we know. Um, they're bottlers. Ultimately, they will never win a, a kind of standoff between the fans and the city against them. Um, and as long as we kind of stay mobilised, obviously we've got the um, we've got, as Jay mentions, the fan representation on the on the um, on the board now. It does kind of strike me as throwing us just enough crumbs to to shut us up for a bit until they they try their next venture. But ultimately, that that will have an effect. And uh, and I think what well, I think yeah, kind of what everyone has shown is that. Um, no matter how rich you are, no matter how much money you have, no matter how many shares you own or this, that and the other, um, at the end of the day, if, if 5,000 people turn up outside Old Trafford and stop you playing, you're going to lose a lot of money. Um, and no amount of money can kind of account for that uh, that passion and that and that will to kind of keep the game in some aspects uh, as our own, um, if that makes any sense at all. So, yeah, that, 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 that's what I'd kind of say on it. And um yeah, on the overall owner question, I, I'd, I'd probably just, I'd probably just keep them because, as I say, they are, um, you know, we we know what they're like, and they're not the worst, they're not the best, but we know ultimately we have the power over them, don't we? Yeah, well, it, I think let's hope that that is the case, and we do retain that kind of influence, for want of a better term, um, Beryl, I don't really want to have to put you through. <laughs> talking any more about that unless you've got anything specific to add that hasn't already been said 
Yeah, just a just a little. Um, you know, um, John Henry famously is a, is a mathematician, yeah, right? So you know, he uh, um, it's 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 a bit of the rags to riches, but you know, that's generally a myth. But the man um, has been uh, you know successful in 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 using his mathematical mind. Um, but he also strikes me as someone who doesn't have a have a uh, you know the right antenna to to feel things like um, you know to 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 know uh, intuitively that that furloughing your staff won't go down well with a club like Liverpool and and you know all of these other things that they have done and and backtracked on you know and 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 it, it it's it's a bit like and I I sometimes think. That the advice around him isn't isn't uh, as good as it should be. You know, they, they, all of these mistakes that they made. You know, uh, raising the ticket prices, uh, the furloughing of the staff, uh, the, the, the Super League thing. Um, all of these things um, in, you know, were were utterly. Um, um, you know, you, you you could you could see from a mile that that that, we, that, that the Liverpool fans wouldn't 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 uh, take this. So. Um, it, it's it's like they just really don't know that they that they are doing something that that isn't uh, isn't right for this club. So you know, I I, I and maybe I'm being naive here, but uh, that, that's the only thing I that I could add. And 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 everything uh, that's that could be said about this, uh, um, which is uh, relevant, has been said by Jay and and by Andy. So you know, that's the only thing I would add to, to that question. Okay, so Beryl, look. Let's move back on to the pitch then. Um, one of the, one of the big issues with last with last season was the home record. Our home records murdered us. Um, I think even if I think we we finished seventeen points behind City, is that right? Um, I, I believe it is. Yeah. And we lose those six games at home in a row. And you've got you know, Fulham, Brighton, Burnley in there, um, along with whoever else it was that I've repressed to the back of my my mind right now. But the, the conversation happened at the start of the season. How, how much of an how much of an impact was was it going to be with fans not being in the ground? Now, I think we are fingers crossed going to have fans back in the ground from next year next season um, but is it going to be enough are 10,000 or 5,000 going to be enough um, to help us over the line because don't forget that game against the infamous game with the man up injury against West Brom um, where they equalised I think in the last minute that's in front of fans um, and there's also a chance that further into the season there is some sort of other spike that that leads to football being played in empty grounds again is there something that we can do to try and address that issue now if that is the case and still make sure that we're adapting to playing in front of even if it is smaller crowds and it's not going to be the what is it whatever it is now 56,000 people um 
And you know, first of all, I, I think the, the the power of the crowd, and and especially with a with an emotional club like like Liverpool, and you know, this is related to what what I just said about um, uh, FSG not understanding the emotions about this club. Um, it it can't be underestimated. This is clear now, and it should be clear to everyone now. But uh, at the same time, um, I remember us talking about this. I think a year ago, and 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 uh, at the time I thought, you know, that um, that generally uh, a, a weaker club, if I can, you know, say that respectfully, uh, has has a better chance to to, to win against the you know a, you know a team like like Liverpool or Manchester City uh, if the if they they can put up a fight and 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 they get their their fans behind them. Um, and if the, those fans aren't there, then probably the the the, the more technically uh, adept team w- will win. But you know, and, and here comes the second factor. You know, w- we we did have all all of these uh, major injuries to 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 players that are very important to to the way we play. Um, and you know, these two factors. You know, it, it was the perfect storm for us to be shit. And uh, as we were, you know, in 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 in, in uh, between January and March, and and uh, if if one or the other is addressed, then we should probably be, um, you know, less worried about you know ha- having a having a season like we had uh, this season. So you know, if if Virgil is coming back, um, um, Joe will come back uh, during this season, but also we have uh, Ibrahim Konate. Um, and, uh, Jota is is back, and you know, all, all of these, uh, you know, and Hendo is back, and and uh, hopefully if, if if Fabinho isn't asked to play all over the pitch, then you know he he won't be uh, um, as susceptible to injuries as he was this year. So um, and 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 if and I I I really hope it doesn't happen, but <clears throat> if if fans are, are not allowed. Uh, to be, uh, um, you know, to, to watch the games in the stadium f- for a while again, then then we should probably be fine. But if if everything conspires against us, then th- there's nothing we can do in in, in general. So um, I think our players, everyone, uh, our staff has has learned, of course, from uh, from the experiences that uh, that we uh, had to endure in the last season. But you know what we saw was that uh, that the teams with with the largest uh, selections, you know, with with lots of good players that 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 they could rotate, um, Manchester City being being the the most uh, prominent example of this, uh, you know, who were more successful and um, Man United, uh, you know, their first eleven, if if you know everybody were were to be fit, their first eleven couldn't compete with ours, and, and may, maybe that's even the case for Manchester City, but. When you don't have that first eleven, but and you can't even rotate, then you know uh, in a league which is 38 games, then then you will probably uh, uh, prevail. So you know lots of answers to to that question. So um, there's a limited uh, amount of things that we can do to to insulate us against uh, you know the kind of troubles that we had uh, this season. we will have learned from the experiences, but um, the only thing that we could say is, again, you know, it's it's not very probable that all of these things will happen at the same time again. And, you know, hopefully, <laughs> let's put it that way. 
Yeah, I, t- I take your point, Beryl. You know, we can point to a million different things. Um, but at the same time, you know, just to play devil's advocate, Jay, with you um, on this matter, we had those issues towards the last 10 games of the season and somehow we managed to pull results and performances from absolutely nowhere. Um, with, like, let's, let's, you just need to look at those two centre halves. You know, that's all you need to do. Um we're running players into the ground as well. At that point, like we really are absolutely flogging these guys because it's the only the only guys that we've got left. You know, Fabinho plays about 150 million minutes and he's injured for about you know, I know three or four games. So do you think that do you think that there's a psychological issue there? And if so, do you think that that psychological issue has actually been resolved through that patch this season? And that is something that we can kind of like an experience, like a learned um, lesson that, that we can take into the next the next year. I'd say so, yeah. I'd say you've got to go through adversity, haven't you, to to learn how to get better. Um, and I don't think it'll get any worse in recent times. Looking ahead of us, obviously, than what we had in what was it, January, February and early March that we were just dreadful. Um, it, it was unheard of. It, we'd, we'd never lost six games in a row at home. Um, and to the calibre of teams that we were losing to, like, you know, Everton, Fulham, Brighton, Burnley. Um, oh, Everton, there's, there's, there's what was replaced to the back of my mind. I, you know, that was, that was the... That's the only thing they've got clinging on to from their dreadful season, which can we all just have a moment to appreciate. Carlo had the first opportunity to go, and he <laughs> ran. <laughs> um, he wouldn't even think twice. Oh. I mean, of all clubs, Madrid, and he just went without a shot. Um, but he won. But he won the. He won the IB Liverpool and Anfield trophy. So you know, they can oh, yeah. put that. They can put that up beside the cuckoo clock with the asterisks of an empty stadium. Um, but yeah, I think they. There's a lot of things like you look at the players that had COVID, like Mane, Thiago, and Trent. All right, Mane maybe not so much, but Thiago and Trent. So in the latter months of the season, where I think it's been known that the effects on athletes are a lot more because they live in this protective bubble anyway, in a normal environment where you know they they only mingle with the immediate family probably and the other players around them. They don't sort of socialise with the general public like they used to in years gone by. So they have this like closed immune system and when they've had something like COVID then it's probably going to affect them more because they probably haven't built up this like general antibodies that the general public like we do because we're exposed to everything. They have everything in a super cleansed environment and it's all perfectly made for them. So Maybe it was the effects of long COVID on them as a bit more, um, and arguably those two players, along with others, um, would have stand out in the in the last ten games. Um, but taking it back to like the centre halves, and I think everyone agrees that unless it really is absolute dire straits and you've got no centre halves at the club, Fabinho should always be left in midfield. Um, and it just begs the question why it took Klopp so long to make that move. 
what what made them think like that's it now I've just got to give in and accept the fact that Fabinho has to be in midfield and I've just got to go with Reese and that because they weren't available earlier on in the season when he was chucking Henderson and Fabinho back there and I don't know what it was only Klopp knows the answer to that but as soon as he put Fabinho back in there it was just all of a sudden we were transformed into a much more solid looking team and I know them two lads at the back have got their issues in terms of the the playing ability, but if you've got Allison behind you, it would again come on leaps and bounds at the end of the season after the most tragic of circumstances, what he went through, and obviously Klopp himself, um, and Fabinho in front of you, and then Thiago, who's happy to take the ball anywhere on the field, then, you know, it just becomes a little bit easier. Um, and then looking ahead to next season, obviously, as Ben all said, we've got Virgil coming back and maybe Massip and Gomez will be back at some point. We don't know. We we will see what happens with them. But you've got Kanate coming in and you know, you've got the likes of Thiago with a season under his belt and maybe one or two more around the squad and refresh a few areas then United aren't gonna beat us. Like we beat Chelsea to the top four, even though they won the Champions League and you know, Leicester bottled it again. Like it is only City we've got to compete with and Arguably for me, City are weakened again by losing the likes of Aguero and Fernandinho. Whoever they bring in will not replace them players. They've never truly replaced company. They never truly replaced David Silva as as great as Foden is, as good as Diaz has been. You know, these are big, big players and big personalities and you can't you can't sort of buy that if it's made over years and years and I don't think they'll they'll be stronger next season unless they went and got like Erling Haaland and a, a few other world-class players. But I just don't see City doing that. They don't really like to spend an over 60 mil. So if we get all our players back and a couple of players, then for me, I think we should be favourites next season. OK, I'm not sure the biggies will see it that way today, but I suppose that's, that's even better for us. The eternal optimist. Well, yes, and I, listen, I appreciate that more than most. Um, Andy, the home record thing, you know, it's it's striking our away, our away record versus our home record this season. It's absolutely striking. You've got to consider the fact that obviously the fans have made a massive difference there. But Jay does strike an important point that it's a little bit disconcerting Throughout that period of those six games, and particularly the home ones, how long it took the manager to, you know, fall across a formula that actually worked, which inevitably, and what apparently seems so obvious now, was just maybe instead of playing Fabinho as a centre path, put him where he actually plays to protect the two centre halves, whoever they happen to be. And the difference that made was absolutely phenomenal. And that might be something that people point to to say, well, actually, that's probably the real crux of the issue there. But at the same time, I kind of feel like he committed to Fabinho being that number four and he just stuck with it. But, you know, do you feel like there's maybe a lack of inflexibility there that maybe has been addressed 
when he's got something in his mind and he's really committed to it and he's just terrified of deviating from it or just doesn't think to deviate from it or was it simply one of those occasions where it's like right you know what I've got a fairly decent stock of midfielders here what I'll just do I'll just get my best 11 on the pitch given the situation and it happens to be Fabinho and Henderson centre half I don't think it's to do with a lack of flexibility or a, a lack of willingness to adapt because you look at the front three that he's hung his hat on for the last three or four seasons and he was chopping and changing that like mad throughout those games. Uh, even when Jota was out injured, you know, you were seeing Salah dropped for certain games. You were seeing um, Shakiri thrown in. You were seeing, um, I, I don't know if we quite see Origi, but you even see, you know, Minamino play a couple of times in the first half of the season. So I think it was just a case of like he was a bit paranoid about the quality of the centre halves he had, and and with good reason at times. You know, Reese Williams has a horrendous December to January. I mean, it's it's an absolute you know Lazarus from him that he's managed to come back in and put in those performances towards the end of the season. But he was probably just looking at his his options at centre half, and you have to remember we don't get in. Um, Davies or Quebec until the last day of the window, which is I think is actually the biggest mistake of the season because we were going to do it at a rather we got them in the 1st of January. And I think that was a U-turn that FSG and possibly even Jurgen Klopp made um, towards the end. And but that, actually, that, really, Andy, really what you look at there is Davies doesn't kick a ball and Quebec gets injured with this run of good. I don't think Quebec plays that run of 10 games, does he? Maybe the first few. Yeah, he maybe plays the first few, but what I'm saying is kind of, you know, I'm sure if we had those in the 1st of January, we wouldn't have lost all six games in a row. And if you actually look at our home record, aside from the, there's two draws um, before we go on the six game unbeaten run, or on the six game losing run at Anfield, there's a draw at home to West Brom and there's a draw at home to Man United. So if you take out those eight games, actually from the other 11 home games we have this season, either side of those eight, uh, we win 10 and draw one. And the one that we draw is the Newcastle game, uh, the the 95th minute deflected goal. So, you know, obviously we can't just ignore that. But what I would say is, you know, it's not as if we've been like kind of faulty at home all season until around Christmas time. And um, we were looking like the the machine, that like unstoppable force that we've looked like at home for the last few seasons. Uh, on your point on the on like the, the Fabinho and Thiago thing, like... There's two things I would say that, as I understand it, kind of make up the the tactical plan that we've had over the last couple of seasons. Because it would it, it got to the point where the kind of whole gag and press and the high pressing thing, it wasn't um, having that much of an impact because teams simply didn't want the ball against us, and you can't press teams who don't want the ball. So we were starting to have a lot more control. And you know there were games like I remember Watford at Anfield in the, in 1920 when we win 2-0, and and there were teams that just came to Anfield and and took a 2-0. They were happy to get away from Anfield with a 2-0 a 2-0 defeat. And I think Thiago was brought on in because we were having so much control over those games. And you know he's a guy who's who's played like 70% of his career under Pep Guardiola. You know he's played most of his career with the ball at his feet. Um, and then you're throwing him into a Jurgen Klopp side where you have to be able to leg it around the midfield. You know, we've seen Fabinho took a while to adjust. Uh, Robertson will be at a different position, took a while to adjust. Um, whereas he's he's just been playing with the ball at his feet and Guardiola sides all his career. Now, it's a bit more nuanced than that. But I think that what you saw towards the end of the season was not only had a Fabinho back in there 
Um, and Fabinho and Henderson, they're not only two of the best midfielders in the league, they're two of the best athletes in the league as well. Uh, and Thiago, towards the end of the season, was looking like one of the best athletes in the league. He was pressing high. He was making the tackles that we um, that so often we were complaining in like December, January, that he was just giving away so many fouls. He was making those tackles. He was winning the ball up high. He was winning the Ridiculously ball. Ridiculously good in the air for the size of him as well. Yeah. Yeah, although I I always thought he was. I, I I noticed that even when he was supposed to be playing badly. But um, he was winning the ball high up, and that was meaning teams were disorganised when we won it, and it was creating more space for the front three who thrive towards the end of the season. So there was that. And then there's obviously the loss of Van Dyke because if teams are just going to, um, when we press them, if they're just going to twat the ball up the pitch, if you've got somebody like Van Dyke there who can head it away, who's composed and can recycle it, um, then the ball keeps coming back, and it's wave after wave, um, and eventually we break them down. So they, they were the two things for me. I, I like, I think there's a massive thing about the fans are always is at Anfield, especially the way we like to play. And like one thing I always noticed um, during the sixth game on beaten run when we played Man City, when we were pressing them, we looked like the team that had fear because we were worried they were going to play through us. Whereas with fans there, Man City would be the team that had the fear of making a mistake and 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 the and the, and the cop roaring us on. But I think if you look at that like six game on beaten run, if we fans there, it probably looks something like. Um, two wins a draw three defeats or two wins two draws two defeats it doesn't look like what it did Um, and even like within games there are certain games we should have like maybe won by the odd goal so I think to blame it all on the supporters home record probably isn't right but at the same time it wouldn't have been as bad as what it was if we had a full Anfield in there there's no way we lose six games uh, six games in a row at home with a full Anfield yeah and ultimately you know there's 18 points in those six games that's that's and we lose the league by 17 points. That's exactly that. Exactly. That's what wins us the title, you know, um, against basically nobody, against no one, against a whole pile of duffers that you should beat every every single season, especially Everton. So let's move away from depressing Beryl to even more depressing. Um, let's just do two minutes on VAR because I really, really don't want to talk about it, but I really don't feel like we can avoid the conversation given the, the the decisions that have happened this season and I think personally I think more than anything else they've had a psychological impact on us um, I think what we saw when VAR first arrived is our line crept higher which enabled us to dominate the ball more and helped us in that possession-based system and style that we've evolved to, as Andy was mentioning. But what it did is it meant that we weren't getting, well, again, theoretically weren't getting incorrect offsides given against us, but we made an adaptation to the rules, which I thought was one of the smartest things that this team has done since clubs come in. Is there something we now need to do, given the fact that the system's broken and we can't trust the system? Because we seem to we seem to adjust based on the theory that this system was going to work properly, but the fact is it doesn't. So is there something that we can do to try and avoid these things going against us? Or are we just going to continue to be at the mercy of awful, awful officials? Um, I you know I dread to say it, but the, you know the letter. <laughs> I'm afraid it's the letter. Um, 
you know, the, the European Super League um, that died uh, within the week that it was uh, announced, um, you know, it, it was dreadful and it, 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 it's, uh, it, it's I'm, I'm glad it didn't uh, occur as it, uh, you know, it happened as, 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 as people planned it. Uh, but there was one one thing I thought, you know, one thing that that might redeem it: the fact that you could maybe um, get some competent refereeing, uh, and and you know, this includes VAR. You know, the problem is that it, it is the same institution, the same organization that um, that um, rules everything. You know, the the refereeing, but also the the evaluation of the refereeing. Uh, and, and 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 there is no way that this can work. And if 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 referees are being judged by uh, by you know people who are generally you know ex referees, um, it's it's not the, their their competence that that makes them you know um, 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 makes that they they get uh, better games and 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 they are being uh, being uh, promoted to 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 be a, a a better referee and get the the FIFA degree, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, and and they are probably better at sucking up to to the to the ex referees because if you look at the level of competence that you know um, and and not um, exclusively in the English game, but 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 you know especially so I sh- I could say because you know Dutch Dutch referees aren't any good as well, but sometimes. I think you know the worst refereeing is 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 seen in 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 the Premier League, uh, and and if you if you look at the the VAR decisions, um, starting off from from the Everton game, which is you know if you were to teach how, how not to VAR, then this would be a very good example of it. Um, the fact that they um, try to micromanage if 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 Virgil van Dijk was maybe a, a, a millimeter offside when he got um, got torpedoed by 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 Jordan Pickford is 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 completely ludicrous. They they don't see what's really happening and just focusing on some 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 technicalities. Uh, and happy with in, in their own eyes with with how they have d- dealt with that. So I, I'm not sure if you can deal with that with with the, with the current uh, setup with the current crop of referees. Um, the only thing you could do is you know if, if and, and you're absolutely right. I think uh, and this was one of the smartest things we did, and and it 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 made us even more efficient efficient in our in our uh, in our pressing game that we could. Um, push up higher because we knew that you know um, uh, the our offside trap. If 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 we didn't make any mistake, then 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 the offside trap would work. Um, um, and it, it seems to work. I I don't think we have conceded any goals that that were offside. But on the other uh, side of the pitch, we've we've seen uh, several uh, of these examples of of you know. Uh, supposed offsides. Uh, I, I can remember from the 1920 um, season. Uh, was it against Sheffield United? <clears throat> um, Firmino scored. I think it was a leveler. It was the one-one, and 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 he wasn't offside. <laughs> Somehow he, this was the this was the armpit one, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly the armpit one. 
um, uh, but this season, you know, the, again, the, the Everton game is 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 like uh, the prime example of, of of every VAR mistake, every refereeing mistake you can make was made in that game. Uh, we lost uh, um, players because they were they were you know um, viciously fouled, and in in, in one occurrence uh, there was a red card, and in the other there wasn't. But there was also the the the, the the Henderson goal, which was, you know, an, an incredible goal, um, seeing all the adversity, seeing everything that happened, and, and which would have won us the game, but there was some phantom offside that no one could could you know could could verify, and and the the problem is that we're trying to uh, act as if, and, and we uh, being the FA in this in this case, you know, and trying to act as if we have the technological um, um, tools, instruments to de- to determine uh, marginal offside, but we we don't. Um, and and, and uh, some one point that that no one ever refers to, you know, on on, t- on TV um, is you know they draw these lines. But but was that the exact moment that the ball was <laughs> was leaving the foot of of the player who was passing the ball? And no one ever <laughs> looks at that. It's it's. Uh, it's a given that's uh, apparently the correct time that the ball left uh, uh, the the foot. But um, seeing all of these other mistakes that they make, uh, I'm not sure of that either. So um, uh, the only thing we can do is um, be smart and and don't try to beat the offside trap or try to organize ourselves um, because you know we're not the only victims of uh, of, of these mistakes and and try to. Uh, find uh, um, you know a number of clubs with which we can leverage uh, changes and 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 you know some criteria on which to judge uh, the VAR decisions. Maybe even a, a different organization that that you know evaluates refereeing. But you know maybe that's um, too too much of a utopia. But you know I, I don't I don't see how we can fix VAR without fixing. All other issues in um, in football. Yeah, it's an interesting point you bring up there, Burrell. Jay, um, you know, is there a potential that you know we we know that we know that the FSG and the Glazers have a fairly good relationship. Um, we know that there's obviously been communications between clubs um, in order to kind of arrange this this breakaway that failed miserably. So there are relationships built amongst those clubs. Is there something that they can do to go to the Premier League, to the whatever the F, the F, whatever the, F, the referees, organizations, I that one, um, to try and influence an improvement here? Because you know, Beryl's right. You know, watching these guys trying to roof that use this technology is it's a bit like watching a monkey trying to fuck a doorknob. They've got absolutely no idea what <laughs> they've got absolutely no idea what they're doing. Um, or is it a case where there are potentially learned behaviours that the team can try and bring in to games to avoid this happening to them? Um, I still buy the belief at the very start that it, it should never have been referees anyway. Who were running VAR? It should have been an independent panel. So it would have been the same people overseeing every aspect of the game in the Premier League for the whole 
260 games or 500. I don't many games there is. I don't know. Um, but for me, it should have been like an ex-referee or somebody who was clued up on the laws of the game, a technology expert to be able to, if they are going to do these forensic lines and arty-farty stuff, who knows exactly what they're doing and can do it within seconds. And maybe an ex-player who would have to view with the players and understand the reason why you know decisions should go in the favour of the attacker or whatever. Um, and at least then, if it was the same three people, four people, whoever, even if you had the panel of five, I don't know, it doesn't matter how many, but if this panel overseen the whole VAR for the whole season, the chances are the consistency level would be much higher. And then at least you know, you know, it, it's these people who were who were banged to rights. Not David Coos who makes a howler one week or on the Saturday of a decision and rules someone offside by the fingernail and then goes out on the pitch on the Sunday and then makes an absolute howl on the pitch because he's trying to eradicate a, a mistake or the fact that they're just covering for, for each other because it's a little boys club. Um, can the big, powerful clubs as they are in the league have an influence? Possibly, but I think it's just that much of a close shop. You've only got to look at the fellow at the top. It's Mike Riley. He, he was bent as they come and he's, he's clueless. So if he's calling the shots, then then what chance have you got, really? Um, personally, I was a bit 50-50 on VAR. I think the World Cup sort of maybe swayed you a little bit. Thinking, oh, you know, it, it could be good, it could be useful, but now it's just absolutely shambles. Like, it ruins the game, and I think there was a survey last week, and over 40% of fans said they were seriously considering not attending games until VAR was gone, and 97% of fans said VAR has ruined the game for them, whether they're watching on TV. Obviously, we've, we've not really been in grounds while it's been in action fully. Um, but we just don't know what's going on. Like Even if they, if they come to the point of like rugby or I think it's the Australian League and maybe the MLS where there's, there's actual um, communication heard, whether it be on the television, whether the people in the ground don't get that. I think that might be too much of exposure for these little boys in the referee uniforms. But if if the people in the ground had a clue what was going on, if it was like a bit of a communication, because I've been at games and we were at one game and it was like three minutes and we had no clue what was going on. And it was in the middle of winter. I think it was the West Brom game in the cup maybe. And it was freezing. Like we're, we're cold standing there watching it because we're not jumping around singing the shout we haven't got a clue you're asking your mate what's going on these players on the pitch they run the risk of injury if, if they stop and starting for so long and it's just an absolute farce and it could be simplified so much but I don't think they will I think they might try and stick with it they might they might maybe make the margin of better a bit wider on the offside but I'll know more because I think they do it in the Dutch league they have a bit more of a a system where it's a bit wild. I don't know. He, he'll not. I'm bit old. You can help me out here. I don't know how it works. If, if he's back, <laughs> I know he's yeah, going yeah, for a walk. I'm, I, um, I'm, I, I'm not sure if it works, but <laughs> I think they they made a made a decision to to have a you know a, a bigger margin of error. And so, you know, if 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 a player looks like a toenail. Offside, it isn't ruled offside. I think. 
Yeah, I, we did a bit on this actually before. I think there's a, there's a is it maybe a ten millimeter margin of error, and if the is it the last touch or something? If, if the players fall within that ten millimeter margin of error, then the original decision stands. And a decision isn't made by the VAR system. So that's the way it works, which kind of it's kind of pointing to the acceptance that the technology isn't perfect, which yeah. we all know anyway. So yeah, I get that. Andy, just to wrap this up, uh, because like I said, I don't want to spend too much time on it. The guys have made loads of loads of sense around the whole thing, but let's be honest, sense will not be applied. They have changed the offside rule and the handball rule simultaneously to adapt to people not being able to use the computer properly, which is now the fact that the end of your shirt sleeve, depending on how long the shirt sleeve is, is now onside. Um, or sorry, you can score a goal with it. Therefore, there's more chance of you being offside, etc. if you like, point. So is there are there things that we, I suppose I'm looking at it really specifically from the club here, are there things that we can do within the club to try and try and make sure less of these decisions go against us next season? Uh, okay, I'm going to start my stop watching my phone and I'm going to stop talking after two minutes because honest to God, on VAR, I could do easily 20 minutes on it. Just oh, run e- through the easily, raven. mate. Um, we, could do, we, could do, we could do three days on it now and I don't want to. No, I know, I know you don't. Um, so I'll, I'm going to go dead quick on this. Yeah, the clear and obvious thing, like the the <laughs> the biggest thing on this, the biggest analogy I can give is uh, Mike Dean in West Ham against Chelsea overturns a VAR decision or overturns an initial decision to send off Balbuena, and that is then overturned on appeal. So he's overturned what was supposedly a clear and obvious VAR decision that was overturned in the match. I mean, if that doesn't tell you uh, how dysfunctional the uh, PGMOL or whatever the fuck it's called is, then I don't know what will. Um, it's just see see on the on the, dead quick on the point about the um, offside the ten millimeters. The issue with that is that it works both ways. So if a decision looks wrongly offside, or sorry, if a decision is wrongly given offside and it looks quite tight, but you can sort of see this onside, it has to be onside then by the margin of error for it to be overturned. So you can get still get wrong decisions with that, and it doesn't actually kind of give any more goals although it does account for as, as the guys have said the 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 clear mistake in there or the the difference in the um, the difference in time of the frames it's just um my main thing honestly i don't care if it gets 100 percent of decisions right um when i go to a football game i like to uh, when the goal goes in, that's why the reason I love football is because you have one quick look at the linesman, it flags down, and then you go mental with your mates. That's the joy of football. That's the romance of football. And you can't do that anymore. So I don't care if they're, they literally get it down to like um, 10 seconds before they can get a decision. If I can't celebrate instantaneously, that's why I fell in love with football. And that's why, um, you know, that that's what takes it massively away from it with me. And that's why I haven't enjoyed football as much over the last couple of years. It's just, um, it's just... It'll it'll not change because the world and football's kind of going to this globalized, Americanized, um, American buzz of waiting for the camera. That's what they do in the NFL. That's how they enjoy their entertainment, and that's what's kind of been seeping into football since well, I assume since 1992. Obviously, I wasn't born at the time, but um, that's yeah, that's basically my thoughts on it. I I hate it, but they're going to keep reforming it and reforming it and reforming it. Um, they're not going to scrap it at this point. Uh, with the offsides, just dead quick, like if they do, if they do like a clear and obvious thing, the reason that wouldn't work is because you'll get one referee who's clear and obvious is less of a margin of error than another referee who isn't, and then you can actually um, put that into an arbitrary figure 
and you can and then somebody can say okay there's clear cheating there he was offside by three millimeters and you gave that as clear and obvious whereas the other person was offside by five millimeters and you didn't give that and those are things you can actually measure um and if one more person says uh oh they should keep the flag they should put the flags up straight away because a player might go and get injured i mean that just don't even get me started on that um sorry i've done two minutes 40 so go on ahead <laughs> it's fine so basically what we're saying is is there's absolutely nothing that we can do to avoid this and we're just going to have to go through the cmp in next season yeah they're not they're not going to scrap it now no okay so um all right we'll take a break um and we'll have a quiz so guys this is real simple okay um, the Euros are coming up so what I have is I have a list of all the players who have played at a European Championships while at Liverpool there are 43 ranging from 1968 until 2016 so we're just going to go around and around until there's one person left so let's see. We'll just go in alphabetical order. Beryl, we'll kick off with you. So any Liverpool player who's played at the Euros who was at Liverpool at the time? I'll take the low-hanging fruit. Uh, um, uh, let's start with Gerard. Yep. Steven Gerrard, uh, 2000, 2004, 2012. Uh, Andrew Bell then. Uh, so that so after being at Liverpool at the time and doesn't include like this year. So like for example, um, yeah, no. Okay, yeah, that's fine. Um, right. Um, <laughs> I'm doubting that for the night. Uh, Jimmy Carragher's bound to be on there. Oh my goodness, you're out already. Are you joking? Jimmy Carragher <laughs> never played a game at the Euros. Oh my he, god. He was in a squad but never played a game. Oh, I had to play a game. I missed that. I actually went to... I, I'm not even joking here. I went to put my light on um, and I didn't hear the full explanation because I was going to write some names down. I went to be honest. Right. Probably, I probably w- the fact that The fact that this is going to be really short, if you haven't done that, uh, I'm going to let you have another go. Okay. All right. Um, I, feel a, I feel a bit dirty because I probably would have said Carragher anyway. But, um, right, let me go for another one. Uh Oh, God. Why can I not think of names? Uh, Henderson. Jordan Henderson. Jordan Henderson. Yes, indeed. Jordan Henderson, 2012. Jay? Michael Owen. Yep. Michael Owen in 2000, 2004. Beryl? Uh, Milan Baros. Very good. Milan Baros in 04. He was top goal scorer at the tournament at the time, I think. That was when we really should have sold him. I'll say that a million times, and I've said it a million times already. Um, back to Andy. Um, I'm really, I'm actually for some reason completely blanking here. Um, so I've, I've like names in my head that I, I can't quite put my finger. Didi Haman. Very good, Didi Haman. Yes, 2000 to 2004 as well. Good shout, Jay. Torres. Yes, Torres, of course. Torres scores the winner in the final in 2008. I couldn't think of it. it was the World Cup or the Euros he scored in. Yep, Euros. Iniesta scores the goal in the World Cup final. Ah, yes, um, yes. Feral? Um, I think Xavi Alonso must have played. Yes, he absolutely did. 2008. Andy? 
So sorry, I'm really sorry. They have to have played while they were at Liverpool, or they. Correct. Yeah. Um. Right. 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 And uh, let me see. Let me go through some nations. Um. Do, do, do. TikTok. TikTok. Excellent listener. This listener. There's one in my head which is is probably going to be wrong, but I, I can't stop thinking about it. Uh, Jersey Judek. Jersey Dudek goes but does not play. Ah, all right. Unlucky, Andy, you are gone, my friends. Okay, two left, Jay. Uh, we'll stick Spanish. We'll go Arbaloa. He was Arbaloa, yeah, very good. Very good. Arbaloa also in 08. Um, Beryl? Um, I think Dirk Kuyt must have played. In two tournaments, 08 and 012, Andy, your mate's going to be really annoyed with you. <laughs> I <know>. um, <laughs> Jay, back to you. Uh, oh, Schmeisser. Yeah, another good one. Yep, Schmeisser. Um, oh, uh, 2000 and 2004. Beryl? Um, I think Philip Degen must have played. Philip Degen did not play. Ah. Uh. Philip Degen did not play. So, Jay, if you get this, if you get the next one right, you are our winner. Uh, Paddy Berger. I'm going yeah, with the Czech team. Yeah, Paddy Berger. Well done. Okay, so just a few names I'll throw out here. We'll go way back. Roger Hunton's 68, when I think there was only four teams. Um, 80, we've got Phil Thompson, Clemens, Ray Kennedy, McDermott, Neil, and David Johnson. 88, we've got Barnes, Beersley, McMahon, Houghton, Whelan, and Aldridge. Here's where everyone's going to kick themselves. Euro 96. McManaman, Fowler, and Redknapp. Oh dear, lads. Um, we've also got moving into. I don't two- support England, Dave. You know this. Yeah, that's okay. I just thought, like, <laughs> I'm sure in England, especially now, all I've seen is replays of Holland and England. You're, or sorry, the Netherlands and England. Euro '96. It's on every week somewhere. Um, we've also got them moving in 2000s. Heskey. Uh, we've got Vesterveld. Um, we have Stig Ingebjörnby and Vegard Hegem. <laughs> I know. We've also got Stefan Onsho. We've got Stefan Onsho, Switzerland, 2004. Uh, one Spaniard missing. Can anybody tell me? Pepe Reina. Very good. Pepe Reina. Now you're getting them right, Andy. <laughs> um, okay. A couple more Englishmen from 2012. One infamous transfer. Uh, Andy Carroll. Yeah, Andy Scored, Carroll. Scored, doesn't he? Uh, yeah, and another uh, much lambasted fullback. John Johnson. Mhm. Oh. Uh, we have another. Uh, with with probably a, maybe argue a cult hero here. Um, moving back Kyrgyz. to. S- <laughs> Sorry. Kiriakos. K- no, was- no, no. <laughs> Mamadou Sakho. No, less no, cult no, than Kiriakos. No. Uh, Dan Agger. Oh sure. Dan Agger, and then 2016. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven that none have played. So we have three for the England squad. But he never played. Sturridge. Sturridge. Sturridge, yep. Sturridge. I think he scores, scores against Wales. Sterling. Sterling isn't, Sterling isn't with us at the time, oh, I don't think. Okay. No. Um, Gomez? No, my favourite. My lo- lovely, lovely footballer. Lalana. Adam Lalana plays three times in that tournament. That's why England were shit, obviously. Um, not to mention Roy at the helm. 
and <laughs> another much maligned fullback. Kuliszewski? Nope. <laughs> um, Martin Kelly? Nope. Went, but didn't play. Uh, I think he ended up at Crystal Palace there recently. Oh, uh, Nathaniel Klein. Very good, Nathaniel Klein. Um, sure. And then we have three more. We have the Welsh Xavi. Joe Allen. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Allen still at us. Joe Allen. Uh, yeah, 2016. Yeah. Um, and then everyone's favourite goalkeeper. Carrot. No, not Carrot. Oh, Simon Mingley. Yeah, Simon Mingley. Okay. Everyone's favourite go- own goal scoring centre half. Oh. Not Jimmy Carter, obviously. No, no. <laughs> Skirtle. Skirtle, yeah. And finally, in my book, and Andy, you'll agree with me here, the most overrated Liverpool player and probably the last Oh, Emre Chan, yeah. Emery Absolutely. Chan. Yeah. And the final one I have mentioned, did I, mean, I don't know whether I mentioned it, Roger Hunt in 68. I think I did. Okay, so, um, well done, Jay. Um, well done, Jay. There. Yeah, I'm yeah. proud of myself because I don't watch international football. <laughs> It's all right. I only did a podcast on it, man. I was out first go. <laughs> I, I, I just all right. Ca- okay. caught in, on on the on the 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 uh, in my mind in, only this this uh, foreign players uh, frame opened. And <laughs> I forgot all about the English players. Yeah, it's okay. bizarre. All right, so guys, the last the last thing we really want to talk about um, before we finish off something a bit fun. Is obviously squad depth is something that's been talked about a lot. Signing center halves is obviously something that's been talked about a lot. So we'll do a bit on transfers. This is obviously something that's going to address issues that occurred last season. So, you know, um, Beryl, let's just take first stab on Kanate here. I think you've watched a bit of him. You watched a bit of him in the, the under 21 Euros there, I think, recently. Um, it's the signing that I think we all expected. I think it's the signing a lot of people wanted. Um, but he, I think he's younger than Joe Gomez. I think he's 21, isn't he? Um, this guy looks like he could have everything. And there were suggestions that actually between him and Upa, I can never say this guy's name, Upamecano, um, he was maybe actually the better. So, you know, what are your thoughts? Is this, is this real, real good business? Um, you know, I, I would be lying if I could, if I would say that. You know, I'm I'm absolutely sure that he will be, uh, you know, uh, the new Virgil. Um, I, I've watched um, a, a bit of him recently and 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 tried to watch more of him, but but he he didn't play a lot in the in the latter part of the season for uh, Red Bull Leipzig, although being um, being fit. I saw him uh, as you know captaining the uh, under 21s of France against uh, the Netherlands. But um, you know, it, it wasn't his fault. I, I actually think he played really well. But um, they lost against the Netherlands in, in the 93rd or 94th minute uh, a goal. Um, uh, so yeah, he, he couldn't progress uh, any further in that um, um, tournament. But uh, what I uh, probably like about him is, and, and what makes him, you know, we we apparently chose between him and Ozan Kabak and I've I've uh, I've had a bit of time on, on my hands the uh, uh, last weeks and uh, 
uh, I, I've, I've rewatched some games. Uh, the the Arsenal way, uh, uh, game away is, is is a really good game that we played, and and uh, I think Ozan Kabak was was probably our best player in that game. Um, and he has uh, he has lots of things, but he doesn't have the same physicality, you know, the same physique that that uh, Konate has. Konate is big and at the same time uh, very quick. Uh, you know, for a big lad, uh, you know, a, a bit like uh, uh, one Virgil van Dijk. And uh, he, he has the same uh, kind of, um, you know, he, 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 his style uh, reminds me of, of, uh, of Virgil van Dijk. Um, but at the same time, at, at 20, I think he's 22, if I'm not mistaken. But um, at 22, I, I, I watched lots of Virgil van Dijk. But, um, you know, the, the Dutch top clubs, if you can, you know, in the top in in their own league, um, weren't interested in Virgil van Dijk. They had all, uh, you know, they thought he was maybe a bit too slow to react. They were all wrong, but um, um, I, I can I can see the same things um, being true for Konate. He 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 needs to learn and he needs to be as sharp as you know, mentally sharp as as Virgil van Dijk is now. Um, but he has lots of time and and. I think the only thing that would concern me is his, uh, you know, uh, is the amount of, of injuries that, uh, or, or better said, you know, the amount of time that he hasn't been able to play because of injuries. It wasn't as much as, you know, that he had lots of injuries, but he had a, a, a couple of injuries that took him out for a while. Um, I'm, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, that Liverpool has, has looked at that um, very thoroughly. Uh, and uh, and assessed that that wouldn't be a problem um, uh, and uh, nothing that you know would uh, make this a risk. So I'm 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 very excited. You know he has this very very uh, calm demeanor and uh, it it would be like you know uh, Virgil w- with a younger version um, right beside him. So <laughs> it could be a really interesting thing to watch. Um, uh, and, and and I think you know if 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 all of this is true and if he stays fit and he he adapts quickly to to the league then you know we have gold in our hands and it would be really really cool uh, to to watch this uh, unfold. Let's you know uh, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, Jay, it's um he's one. I've watched bits and pieces, and he'll be able to tell us a bit more detail because we watch a fair bit of German football, but. He looks like he's real, really good feet, really quick feet. Um, he can carry the ball out of defence. It's something that we're going to need to see again. The the, the possession-based style that we saw earlier on, being able to step into midfield, commit players, drag players in to engage him and free up some space um, for the midfielders to kind of move the ball towards the final third. But do you have a lingering concern about the injury record uh, maybe but I trust the club to have done more than enough checks on that considering what we've had this season the centre half I think the club don't go through with a deal for for such a such a price without doing extensive checks and knowing that everything is absolutely squared off 100% triple checked um, so so I, I, I wouldn't have too much of a concern it's, there's always a concern with every player you sign in an injury if they've got especially a track record but 
I think from when you look at it, it all stemmed from his hip and kind of being rushed back. And from what you sort of look around at the news around him and his return to uh, playing at Leipzig this season, he was managed a lot more um, in terms of his playing time. And they were very careful with him. Now, whether that was the fact that we had a deal in place a long time ago and we've sort of asked for them to, you know, don't hurt him, make sure he's managed properly and he's brought back to full fitness correctly or whether that was just Leipzig just protecting their assets anyway, whether he was a deal for us in place or not, that they knew it was this year he probably had to sell him. Um, and even McCarnell was already on his way to buy him and Nagelsmann's gone to buy him. Um, they're a club that do sell their assets and then will reinvest and I think he had two years left on his deal if it would have went down to next year they wouldn't have got the high price that they got for him in this window although if he turns out to be the player that everyone thinks he is he's half the price of what Harry Maguire was for United and you know <laughs> you've only got to look at how well that's turned out for him in England um, I've not seen too much of him because he's been injured um, and the only German football I do watch is mainly Dortmund um, and a couple of games I've seen Leipzig versus Dortmund he's not played in um, for one reason or another so I can't say I know too much of him obviously YouTube compilations and Twitter videos and, everything. and he, he looks the part he, he seems to to carry the ball well he steps out he can play a pass he, he looks to break the lines with his passing um, and he's a big big strong lad which is never a problem um, in the Premier League you need big strong lads like Nath Phillips again big strong lad head to kicks it but that was enough for him and that was enough for us um, Reese Williams isn't really a big strong lad and was exposed in games and you know the Premier League will do that to you um, other leagues won't but he looks the pass he, he's in the door if Verge is coming back then hopefully we can get a season of a, a solid back pairing with a couple of players in and out for rotation purposes but it would be nice just to have that solidity at the back once again and I'm sure he won't be the last of, of players coming in and, and I think there was a couple more that we want to get into but he was the first one in the door and it was a glaring issue we had to address so I, I'm, I'm glad it's done and we got our business done early which, which we seem to do unless it's the January transfer window when we need a centre half and you know we <laughs> dragged that out till the to die numbers and then the one that you bring in you don't even see if he exists yeah um, so Andy I know you've watched a fair, a fair bit of, of German football over the last probably couple of years um, where are you in Canada does he fit the bill yeah I haven't actually seen all that much of him um, I've been watch- yeah, watching German football really since um, just before like the the first lockdown um, because there was just it got to the point where the Premier League was you, you could you'd like 10 games to choose from I, I think me and Jeff talked about this before like used to be three o'clock on a Saturday you had at least five games and you'd want to tune in to match of the day and it was just kind of frying my brain so I I find the Bundesliga the next best alternative. So I've seen a little bit of him, and he's uh, yeah, as everyone said, he fits the age profile. Um, athletically and physically, he's got all the attributes. He's good on the ball, and I think um, I think the the kind of physical attributes of a centre half, um, as 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 the guys have touched on there, like well, that maybe Nat Phillips didn't have aside from being good in the air. I think that's crucial for us because 
not only, you know, of course, you get yourselves into defensive scenarios where you need to have a, a, you know, a defensive brain, a footballing brain, um, knowing where to be. That's all massively important. But what's also massively important for us is to play that high line, is to squeeze the midfield, is to um, prevent teams getting space so we can win the ball high up the pitch and create space for our front three. That's all crucial. Um, you know, in 1920, we just had teams camped into their half. And I, as I said earlier in the podcast, then they tried in time, they tried to... Um, to, to, to find an outlet Van Dijk would just head it straight back and we'd be wave after wave again and that's exactly what you get with Kanate you know if the ball goes over the top he's got the pace to get back in by, uh, to get back in and recover if um, if you know that you're playing a big striker like Chris Wood that'll be no problem to him either um, if you're um, I don't know it, it, there's just there's not a from what I've seen of him and from what I've, I've read and, and, and what I understand there's not a single kind of striker in the league that you'd think Oh, I don't fancy him coming up against Kanate today. Whereas with Reese Williams, you, you'd think like a, you know, a, you know, a particularly quick lad, you wouldn't really fancy him, or up against a Zaha or something. And with Nat Phillips, you wouldn't really want him to come up against a, a trickier player. We could get caught one on one. And even with, um, you know, even with the likes of Dejan Lovren, who I actually, I actually thought was all right. I quite liked him, but you didn't want him to come up against the likes of a Troy Deeney. There's not that type of player really with Kanate that you're you're overly fearful of. And I don't know if he's going to come in and be, and be sort of. I don't really like the word first choice because I think that he always kind of rotates the centre halves anyway. Gomez will get a few games, Matip will get a few games, Kanate will get a few games, and Van Dyke's always kind of been that constant in the side. But uh, you know, it's, we needed another body there. He fits every profile that we need in terms of you know the age and the and the physicality and the quality on the ball uh, and I'm excited to to see him to see him in a red shirt next season. So do we? So what do we do then with with the centre half position? Not not what do you do? What do you think we do with the centre half position? Obviously, music to your ears. Quebec isn't going to be signed. I'm fairly happy about that too to be honest you know I don't think he's that good um I think his his reputation was was inflated by the situation and what was around him which was available um and obviously the the dire straits that we were in but you know there's rumors Phillips is going to stay um there would be an argument to say that, you know, he could be a horses for courses sort of centre half. You could throw him in against Burnley and be happy enough there, especially based on, you know, what happened to Turf Moor um, in the last few weeks of the season. Um, results improved while he was playing. So we've also got Davis in the background. What, what we're going to do with him, I don't know. But, you know, you'd say maybe there's five, possibly six there. Do you think we sign another? Do you think we get rid of? All of but those four. Yeah, I mean, well, as if it wasn't wound up enough by the quiz, Beryl decided to rattle off Quebec's highlight reels and what game he's played well in this season, which I was just had my hand hovering over the mute button. But but Andy, I just heard you say you like Dian Lovren and you don't like Ozan Kabak. No, I I didn't know really. I didn't know really. Yeah, I know, I know. There, I didn't know really. Like, um, I I didn't think Lovren was as bad as as people kind of made out. Um, and that's that's one of my points is that uh, it kind of it's a nice segue onto it is the fact that you know this all boils down to this entire question that you just asked me, Dave, boils down to where Van Dyke is at with this injury and whether. Um, this injury has a knock-on impact on him being injury-prone in the future. Um, if it does, then we're in a predicament, and we've got you know potentially we've pretty much got then four injury-prone centre halves because we know what Gomez and Matip are like. We've all seen Kanate's injury record, though. I believe if that was like a major, major problem, 
uh, or anything other than a bit of bad luck, it would have been flagged up in the medical like it was with Nabil Fakir. Um, but if Van Dykes is, if this was just complete freak injury, um, he's completely recovered. And I guess, you know, uh, only the sports scientists at Liverpool will know that. Um, then I think you can go without because Dejan Lovren plays actually 10 games in 1920 in the Premier League. And he's broadly speaking, OK, up until um, Watford when the league was won anyway. That's that's his first bad game. So well, I remember I had this kind of debate with Chief in the podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago. I think it was after... Uh, it might have been after Palace, I can't remember, it could have been the game before, but we're basically talking about whether we need to get another one in. And, and listen, I wouldn't be averse to it. If we went and signed another centre-half tomorrow, I'd be happy. I just don't think it's going to happen. I don't think FSG are going to do it because I think there's an element to which you know, you can't mitigate all potential risk. I mean, you could get seven centre-halves in, they could all get injured, so you say, oh, why would we have an eighth, eighth choice just in case? You know, when you get into fifth and sixth choice, you, you're not going to... You're not going to get somebody of, of, of great quality in. Would Kanate have joined if um, there was going to be a fifth centre half uh, fighting for a, fighting for another slot? Possibly not. We don't know. But what I would say on it is, you know, as, as I say, with Van Dyke's injury record, the point I made the chief in the podcast was when Van Dyke was fit for three years straight playing every single game, how many times did you see our fifth choice centre half play? It wasn't at all, apart from the League Cup. So, um, you know, you look at it, you've got Nat Phillips there. Okay, he's not the, he's not uh, absolutely amazing. He's, he doesn't really fit the style of, 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 of centre-half you want to see at Liverpool. But who knows? You know, a lot of people said we didn't get to see, um, or Ozan Kabak didn't get the chance to play with, with Virgil van Dijk. How do we know what uh, Nat Phillips is going to look like next to Virgil van Dijk? We know he's improved massively on the ball. Um, you know, he's become, he's looked more and more like a Liverpool centre half as the as the days have gone on this season, uh, in terms of like pressing high and playing with a higher line. I think he grew more confident. So who knows? He could be able to do just as good a job next to Van Dijk as any other centre half we've seen next to Van Dijk uh, over the past two or three seasons. And on Ben Davies, I think there was a recent article done by James Pearson, the Athletic, where he was basically saying they see Ben Davies in the in the mould of like Robertson and Fabinho, who just needed a bit of time to adapt to things and, and get his body used to it. So maybe we'll see a bit of him in the preseason. Maybe he'll pleasantly surprise us all. So um, no, I, I, I'm happy enough for the centre half situation as it is. Of course, Van Dijk could get another season and an injury. We could be in the exact same problem. But as I say, you can't mitigate all risk. Yeah, I think that's fair, and I would go along with that, Beryl. You know, I kind of agree with Andy. I think with, if we've got any more money to spend, I would probably prefer to see it spent elsewhere. And I think there's two glaring gaps that everybody's kind of pointing at. Well, probably one glaring gap, which is obviously Ginny Wijnaldum. Um, and there's been a few names mooted, but there's also people still pointing to the, the top end of the pit saying we need a fifth. We need a fifth. Um where do you think the priority lies? Um you know if you ask me where my priority would lie, um which is you know a bit of a mood question, but uh, um I would say, you know, let's let's go with Curtis Jones in midfield. And I think he has shown lots of promise. He's been, uh, you know, he, he, he played uh, a couple of games, uh, you know, uh, quite a stretch of games, and he was fit in those, and, and um, uh, he played, you know, very maturely, uh, especially so if you, you know, account for his for his age. So I, w- I would be tended to, to, to give him a chance, but uh, at the same time, I don't think um, uh, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain and, and Naby Keita, especially Naby Keita, um, should be considered um, 
uh, options for the midfield because you know they they weren't available when we needed them. And I think uh, after a, a couple of seasons, I I think you need to uh, cut your losses. Um, at the same time, um, I'm happy Sadio Mane had had a, a a bit of a revival in the in the in the end of the uh, the season, but you know he, he didn't have the best of uh, of seasons. Uh, oh, you know, but but still, you know, if you look at this his. Uh, his numbers, he, he you know, uh, Marcus Rashford is being loud, lauded as 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 a as an incredible talent, but he didn't have a better season than, than Sadio Mane had, while Mane was having his worst season at Liverpool. Um, uh, Salah was fit uh, all through uh, the season, you know, um, barring uh, a, you know, catching COVID uh, at a, a wedding, if I remember correctly. Um, but I, I think uh, the most important point is is uh, is Firmino um, not being uh, not being a center half for two seasons now I think and and last season we, we you know we were champions so uh, he, he did very well and and it's, this season he he did well but I, I still think uh, that there is there is a gradual drop off the trend is not uh, going in the right direction so i would i would think that we would probably need someone in in, in the middle you know diogo shota is probably um maybe the understudy for mane and maybe he will um be the the first choice at that at that spot but um f- for salah we don't really have uh, an alternative but uh, Harvey Elliott is coming back and he, you know it wouldn't be fair to, to, to say he, he should be the uh, um, uh, the, the understudy for, for, for Mo Salah and step in if, if Mo is, isn't available um, for instance if he goes off for a month to the Coupe d'Afrique um, so maybe we need someone there but I think the the, the, the most glaring um um, um, I, I'm, I'm searching for a word here, but you know, uh, uh, lacune is, is the word that I, I, I come up with. But it's, it's you know, the, the lack of someone is probably in in in, in the the center ha- center forward space. Uh, I don't think we have a real alternative for um, for Firmino for Bobby Firmino. Uh, Minamino wasn't it, and uh, Ings is gone. Um, I, I think we need someone there to to maybe. Um, press Firmino for for uh, that spot, but you know, but when he isn't there because of injury or because of loss of form, uh, we need someone who could do the same job, which is a very difficult job. But you know, we will need to replace him in in the coming years. So uh, I think we we need to look there. So that will be my priority. I think. Okay. Um, yeah. 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 Beryl does make a good point there. Firmino's form has been questionable for a while. You know, he does come into his own towards the end of the season. He he does continue to deliver big goals. You know, Spurs, Man United, um, I think, is it Burnley? Um, You know, so he's contributing there towards the end of the season as well. Um, But but again, you know, the midfield, Wijnaldum is, given the injury issues in there, Wijnaldum's a lot of games to replace with just Curtis Jones. So I know there's been rumours and, and there's been leaks in the press that suggest that 
it's not a priority to replace Ronaldo. But, you know, we've all learned over the last couple of years that that really means the square root of fuck all. So where do you think we go? Do you think we do you think if we spend any more money in one or the other, it's going to be the midfield position? Or do you think it's maybe the likes of a Rafinha that's been talked about? Um, I think it all depends on on how we see the team going next year. If if we go more to a four two three one, would would you be happy with Fabinho and Thiago as your two in midfield? Henderson happy to step in for either. Whether you keep one of Ox or Cater around, that's up for debate. Um, that's another body. Jones and you've always got Milner there if needs be and then you'd obviously need another body in the forward line or two um, I would go for Rafinha because well, a multitude of reasons a, he's he's a left footed player and a left footed player always looks good on the ball uh, well not not all left foot players but you know it, there's just something about the way a left footed player can manipulate it um, you mentioned Paul Tinteski earlier, but I'll just leave that there. Yeah, I did, it did come back into my mind. <laughs> a good left-footed player always strikes the ball a lot sweeter than it looks anyway, unless it was Steven Gerrard, of course. Um, but we don't really have any left-footed options, really, in the attacking half of the field, other than Salah and Shikiri at the moment on our books. But I think if we're all realistic, Shikiri will probably be moved on this summer. So, you know, just purely for balance, um, then that gives you the option to put Salah into the centre-forward role, which maybe answers the question of what do you do with Firmino when that position in the field, if, you, if you've if got someone like Rafinha to play off the right, cutting in like Salah has done, um, then that allows, obviously, Salah to go up top, allows Firmino to, to maybe drop back into a more of a 10 position, it just allows a bit more options up front. Um, gives you Jota and Mane to play from the left. It gives you Salah and Rafinha, if, you, if it was him, to play from the right. It gives you Salah and Firmino to play up top. You've also got the conundrum of what do you do with Harvey Elliott personally. I'd try and get him on loan this season to a Premier League team or a Bundesliga team and give him top flight experience. Um, not a general lookout for the creative player. They might be interested. Um, Daniel Farker someone I think who was at Dortmund so will know Klopp and obviously plays nice attacking football it might be different in the Premier League compared to the Championship but you know the idea on paper should be there um, the, the Wijnaldum one it, if we stick to the 4-3-3 then we do need a body and the name that is quite hotly tipped is Tielemans from Leicester and I wouldn't be adverse to that. It would just be at what cost. And everyone knows Leicester do sell a player every summer, but they do get top dollar for them. And I don't think we're in the market for paying top dollar. I think if it went in over 55 million, 60 at tops, I don't think we'd be interested. Um, but there's hundreds of players out there. There's probably only a select few that would be suitable for Liverpool. But, you know, we, we don't always have to shop in the Premier League proven market it does help but I think it's how Klopp and the team go forward if it is to be a two-man midfield then we probably get by with what we've got in there 
But if he's going to stick with the four-three-three, which we have done for pretty much most of his tenure, then we do absolutely need a body because you cannot rely on on the lads we've got in there to be in there week in week out. The, the likes of Milner and Henderson aren't getting in the younger. They, they keep picking up niggles. Thiago's had a few problems. Sabino's been slugged. And as I said with the other the other lads, they just if they appear, they don't seem to last very long anyway. So. There's a lot of questions and there's plenty of answers out there in players, but I guess that's that, that's the thing that keeps you going through the summer, this silly season of waking up each day and having a look online and see who you're linked with then and who's going, who's coming and the, the silly places banned about. But, you know, it, it, it's what gets you through. If you want a bit of good news, the fixtures are out next Wednesday. So that gives you something to look forward to. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Addy, just to finish us off. Um, Jay, you know, rightly mentions the silly season and, you know, we're going to be linked with a number of players we already have, already signed one, but I kind of get the feeling that what we do in the transfer market largely depends on what we can get off the books. And I'm talking wages here more than anything else. You know, we all know that Jeannie... It's not massive what he was getting paid. So, you know, you might look at someone of that stature in the squad, but, you know, his wages didn't reflect that. So, you know, getting players off the books, in my opinion, is going to be crucial here. The problem I potentially foresee is the same problem that we saw last year. Everyone was selling everyone last year and very few of them went. Do you foresee a similar sort of issue this year? Are we going to be able to get the guys off the books and assigning players solely dependent on that? I think FSG's business model is very complicated and, you know, Swiss Ramble do a very good thing on it every year with our accounts and it gives you kind of a good overview. But there are so many kind of external factors that you're kind of trying to predict. So you've obviously got the COVID thing coming in that those latest accounts only account for the first three months of the pandemic. So next year is going to account for literally this whole year of the pandemic as well. There are people who say, you know, when the Boston Red Sox went, uh, had a really bad year, they spent loads of money. Um, There are other people who kind of look at the pattern of spending at Liverpool since FSG have come in and it's normally been big spend in summer and then two summers of uh, kind of paying it off and then big spend in summer same again so like the last one was the the Alison Keita Van Dyke Van Dyke was a January and Keita was technically the year before but you're paying them off from that summer um, and then there's been two years since that where we've hardly signed anyone really and uh, I know we spent a bit of money late on last year with Tiago and Jota but if you actually look at those deals and what people have been reporting on it uh, I think we only pay like five million for Jota this year um, and we're paying the, like, the rest of that off um, over the next few years and the same with Thiago and I think that was kind of a diddle we did to get around the coronavirus so um, I don't know even like whether seals this summer are just going to be sort of the idea of paying that off and, and, and accounting for that debt rather than actually sort of we've got a budget and whatever comes in from seals will go into the kitty I'm not really sure it's an interesting point you make on the, on the wages um, you know we're a club who Actually, I think we're the second biggest wage spenders in the league. I read that somewhere. I'm not sure how true yeah, it is. But the, other thing you've, the other thing you've got there, Andy, is there's been new contracts mooted for a whole pile of big, big yeah. players there. You know, you're talking Allison Allison, and Fabinho. Allison, yeah. Fabinho, Van Dijk, I think, as well. Potentially even Salah. So, you know, you're talking, that's over the, over the course of the season, that's millions again. Yeah. And, and we know the um, 
from what we've read that the bonuses that those players were on after winning the Premier League and the Champions League were absolutely enormous. Um, and that's part of the reason why we ha- weren't able to spend in those summers as well, because we had to shell out a load of money to those players. So, I don't know, you look at it, I, I had a quick, um, I was doing a quick bit of preparation for the podcast. I wrote down the names in our squad and kind of where we look a little bit light. Um, and I actually sort of came up with, um, you know, when you look at keepers, defenders, midfielders and forwards, I think we could just do with one more in each of those. Uh, that's... Um, you know, Kanate will be the one for the defenders. But I think with Keeper, you look at it and, you know, we spent, what, 13 million on a backup left back in Chimikas. Um, Obviously, Nico Williams has come through at right back. We've really prioritised those couple of positions. Now, on average, Alisson misses six to 10 games every Premier League season. Are you telling me that, you know, we couldn't do with buying a, a decent backup keeper that we're going to need to use and need to kind of hang our hat on? I know there's not really any decent backup keepers in football and they're very hard to find. And there's every chance that that could be Kelleher next season. And from everything I've seen from Kelleher, I'm more than happy for that to be the case. But only Liverpool and, and Jürgen, who sees him day in, day out, will know if he's, he's up to that level yet. Um, so I think we could do with one there. Um, a midfielder, I, th- I think we just do with one more, especially given the fact that, you know, what I was mentioned earlier about Thiago and Henderson being those really athletic players in our midfield that can leg it about that they have to do. So I think a Basuma would be perfect in that position, although it seems as if cold water's been poured over that, which I'm quite disappointed about because I, I really like him as a player and I think he'd fit in to our system like a glove. Um, but at the same time, you know, there could be a an option out there in Europe who's cheaper and younger and maybe scores a few more goals and does a few more assists um, that I haven't heard of and that he could be he could be twice a player. So I'm happy to, to wait and see with the club on that. And I think with the forward line, I think Sir Alex Ferguson used to always say it, um, you can always, you always buy attackers. Uh, you can always buy one more attacker because you can always sell the fuckers. Um, you know, these uh, people who score goals and people who do numbers, you can always get your money back for them, really. So I would do Rafinha. I would do... Uh, I haven't seen much of Daka, but from what people say and, and what type of player he seems to be, I, I, I just do one more of them uh, and kind of always have those options up there because I think, you know, Origi and Shakiri look like they're on their way out. Minamino doesn't look like he's in favour. Uh, Harvey Elliott, a lot of chat. There's been a lot of chat about Harvey Elliott this season, but I'm not sure he's necessarily going to come in and play a massive part. What Jay said about maybe going out to a Premier League club or a, a top flight club is maybe the next step in his development. Uh, and pre-season will be key to determine that. So, yeah, I'd like to see one more uh, in every position. And, you know, dead quick on the on the outs, I wouldn't be annoyed to see Chamberlain or Keita or both of them go, to be honest, because I think especially Chamberlain's on big wages and hasn't really contributed that much over the last couple of seasons. Okay, so inevitably in the transfer window, as Andy says, all we ever want is one more. One more, one more, one more. So on that note, maybe we'll do one more. <laughs> <laughs>